Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Power Forgiveness Podcast. My name is Dwayne Staten, and I want to thank you for tuning in for another episode. This podcast is meant to help those toward the path of forgiveness, for the ones who have been hurt, heartbroken, forever changed by something that was said or done to them, which changed their mindset, the course of their relationships, their future, and even their life in general. With this podcast, I speak about the lessons I've learned from forgiveness, and I give it to you, the audience. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Power Forgiveness Podcast. My name is Dwayne Staten, and I want to talk to y'all about something that, honestly, I've been wanting to talk about for a long time. Forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. Let me say that again. Forgiveness does not always mean reconciliation. Now, let's talk about that. As it said in our anchor verse, Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, we know that it's necessary and that we must forgive. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. We must forgive. But when it comes to reconciliation, there are times when we should and times when we should not. Merriam-Webster defines the word reconcile as to restore to friendship or harmony, to settle, resolve. Pastor Tom Hicks of the First Baptist Church of Clinton, Louisiana, said this of reconciliation. Forgiveness is a unilateral promise. But reconciliation involves bilateral promises. In order for a relationship to be reconciled, not only must the offended party make the promises of forgiveness, but the offending party must repent of sin, promise to continue in repentance, and bear fruit in keeping with their professed repentance, as it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. For example, Let's say the offending party keeps saying things that are harmful to you, your loved ones, or whoever, and those words cause conflict. But when the offending party repents of saying those hurtful words, they'll keep in step with it by thinking about what they say before they say it, pausing to see if what they say is either harmful or kind. They'll read books about taming their tongues. They'll take classes, get feedback, join a church ministry, or whatever. But that's just one example. I found this interesting from the lead pastor of the Journey Church, Eric Reed. This is why some people struggle with the idea of forgiving people who have physically, emotionally, or spiritually harmed them. How can you forgive someone who has made a life-changing medical mistake on your son? How can you forgive someone who raped you? How can you forgive someone who killed your loved one because they were driving drunk? How can you forgive any number of things that seem impossible to forgive? This can only be done by separating forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiving the individual does not require having or maintaining any relationship at all. Some offenses permanently fracture the possibility of any relationship. A woman raped by a man is not expected to forgive If forgiveness means she has to be in his presence and pretend to be friendly. 
But like I said earlier, forgiveness does not necessarily mean reconciling. Now, I won't lie to you. When I heard this, I started to struggle because I always thought that when you forgive someone, you have to reconcile. I mean, that's what God wants, right? But then I looked in the Bible and I found these stories I want to share with you. In Genesis chapter 26, verses 12 to 31, Isaac, who is Abraham's son, dwelt in Gerar. And please, I hope I didn't butcher that name. Forgive me if I did. <laughs> Where Abimelech was king. Now, while Isaac lived there, he planted crops and harvested. And he reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And he began to prosper and continue prospering until he became very prosperous. For he had possessions of flocks, herds, and a great number of servants. And the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped up all the well which his father's servants had dung, dug in the days of Abraham his father. And they had filled them with earth. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Fam, you mad that this is my thing. If I'm Isaac, like, fam, I'm just planting to feed my family. I, and you mad that God has blessed me. I Look, I got I got crops. I got animals. I got service. All right, cool. I ain't trying to start no beef with you. And you going to kick me out? For real? But that's just me. That's just me. Then Isaac departed from there and pitched his tent in the valley of Gerar and dwelt there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water which they had dug in the days of Abraham his father. For the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham. He called them by the names which his father had called them. Also, Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found a well of running water there. But the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, This water is ours. So they dug another well. And they quarreled over that one also. And they moved from there and dug another well. And they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth because he said, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. Fam, I'm trying to feed my family. You kick me out of my home to kick me, to put me in the valley. Now that I'm in the valley, I'm prospering. And you gonna, you gonna be with me there? For real? Come on, man. Let me, let me move on. Then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, one of his friends, and Thickle, Pikel, I, I honestly don't know. Please forgive me if I'm butchering these names. <laughs> the commander of his army. And Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, since you hate me and have sent me away from you? But they said, We have certainly seen that the Lord is with you. So we said, Let there now be an oath between us between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, since we have not touched you, and since we have done nothing to you but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. I apologize. I want to bring this up. When Isaac's service dug up the well and the, and the shepherd's beach with them, the first well that they took over, they they called it Essek because they quarreled with him. And the second well, he called it Sitna. 
this don't make no sense, fam. You gonna kick me out. Because I was prospering. Then I come to the valley. Your herdsman beefing with me. And now you say you want a, you want a treaty? A covenant with me? All right, then. And that's what happened. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. Then they arose early in the morning and swore an oath with one another. And Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now, it says in the New Application Study Bible, with his enemies wanting to make a peace treaty, Isaac was quick to respond, turning the occasion to a celebration. We should be just as receptive to those who want to make peace with us. When God's influence is in our lives, it attracts e people, even enemies. We must take opportunity to reach out to them with God's love. That's powerful. Another story that I want to bring up was Joseph and his brothers. Now, his brothers wanted to kill him. One brother convinced the others, look, look, let's just throw him in a cistern. I and just leave him. That brother was going to come back secretly to get him and free him. But it was too late and just was sold into slavery. Years later, Joseph became the number two man in Egypt. So let's say it again. He became the number two man in Egypt. He was the governor. Now, when there was a famine in the land, his brothers went to the governor of Egypt to get food. And who was it? Who was in charge of it? Joseph. And he didn't even recognize the brother. Now, things happened that brought the brothers back and forth to Egypt. Uh, when y'all get a chance, read Genesis chapters 37 to 50 when you get a chance to get the whole story. But Joseph couldn't deceive his brothers, and he revealed himself. And even forgave and reconciled with them, saying this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Now, some of y'all may be thinking, oh, yeah, I let these bamas serve me. <laughs> After all the stuff you put me through, almost killing me, putting me into slavery, in jail. Shoot, yeah, y'all gonna serve me for the rest of y'all lives. But let me tell you what he did. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now, therefore, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. A couple things I want to break down here. One, he said, am I in the place of God? We put ourselves in that when we want to hold judgment over someone, we want to hold unforgiveness against someone. We're not God. We love him and want to be like him, but we are not him. And Joseph, he went beyond the call. He forgave his brothers and reconciled with them. And he even said, 
I will provide for you and your little ones. He said, I'll provide for your families. That's how much he forgave. And that's how much he reconciled. And that's what happened with him. That was powerful. Another story was in Luke chapter 22. Get this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 34, Jesus told Peter he would deny him. In Luke 22, chapters, I mean, chapter 22, verses 54 to 62, Peter denied him, just like Jesus said. And in John chapter 21, verses 15 to 17, Jesus and Peter reconcile. It says, so when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him a third time, do you love me? He said, he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And that's exactly what Peter did because he went on to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, healing people and raising the dead in Jesus' name. And he writing two books in the Bible, first and second Peter. This man denied Jesus. He, Jesus told him straight out, you're going to deny me. And then Peter said, I would never deny you, Lord. And he ended up doing it. And instead of Instead of being condemned, Jesus forgave and reconciled with him and said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And he did that. Reconciliation can bring back so much. It can also... It does so much. And also, lastly, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciled himself to us through Christ, whether we wanted him or not. He did it. It's like I said in the last episode, God's love will hunt you down. It's not a lie. It hunted me. <laughs> and I'm glad he got me. But that's what happened. Now, when it comes to reconciliation in these examples, this is what happened. The offending party repented of, of the wrongdoing. And they kept reproducing fruit in keeping with that repentance. It wasn't fake or one-time thing, but it was continuing. Licensed clinical therapist and life coach Sunshine Gray said this, the entire Bible is the greatest love story ever told, a story of reconciliation of God and people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Saying that forgiveness and reconciliation is important to God will be an understatement. Yet you people, you, me, and everyone are sinful. Some are unrepentant. 
As a result, these are relationships that can't be repaired. It may be unsafe physically or emotionally to attempt reconciliation. In the end, reconciliation is the goal, but not necessary to forgiveness. And to prayerfully seek God for discernment on reconciling your relationship. Now, here's the big question. How do you know when to reconcile and when not to? I'm just give you three things to think about. One, pray. <laughs> that, that's the first thing you should always do in any situation is pray. Pray and seek God's, God's wisdom on if a relationship should be reconciled. Pray that he heals both your heart and theirs. There may be times where you want to reconcile a relationship, but the other person isn't ready. Or there may might be a time where God will say, this season for this relationship is over with, is done. And that happens. It was there for a time to teach you. It was there for a reason. And now that time is over. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 to pray without ceasing. So I say this, pray and seek God's wisdom on if a relationship should be reconciled and pray that he heals both your heart and theirs. Two, the offending party must repent of their wrongdoing. That's it. That, that, that's, that, that's, that's key right there as well. They got to repent of their wrongdoing. If they, they talk crazy to you, stop. If they hurt you, stop. The offending party must repent of their wrongdoing. And the third, see if the offending party is producing fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not, again, like I said before, it's not a one-time thing where it's like, hey, I said it. I said I said I, I, I was going to stop, but I'm not stopping. Or they do it for a little while, then it goes back to the same thing over and over again. That's a problem. But it always goes back to that first point. Pray and seek God's wisdom on if a relationship should be reconciled. And pray that he heals both your heart and theirs. I'll give you an example. With me and my biological mother last year, I we wanted to reconcile. We wanted to restore the relationship. Not going to lie to you. And I was hopeful. And I was praying. And I said, Lord, if it's in your will to restore this relationship, restore it. And what happened was it was the same thing that happened before happened again. I was always doing the communication. I always wanted to do this, that, and the third. But I would always, since learning from the past, I learned, I said, if you want to do this with me, hang out with me, talk to me, it's on you this time. Because I've done, I've done my part. I've done the rec I've done the calling, the hanging out and all of that. I want you to reach out this time. When and she and she would, you know, do it for a while, which was not bad. But then the communication dropped off again like it did last time. Did it hurt? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, do I wish it had gone differently this time? Of course. But when it didn't, I was just like, okay. I gave it to God. 
wasn't meant to be reconciled. And I have peace about it, and it's okay. I'm okay with it. Pastor Eric Reed says the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation is that forgiveness requires nothing from the person we're forgiving. They don't even have to know we're forgiving them. Reconciliation requires repentance from the offender, and even then, he or she does not dictate the terms of reconciliation. For example, should a husband forgive his wife if she had an affair, or should a wife forgive her husband if he had an affair? Yes. That is both the command and the expectation of both of them according to scripture. But is reconciliation also expected? Now that depends on a number of factors. In the instance of the husband forgiving his wife if she had an affair, first the wife must repent of her sin. She has to stop cheating on her husband. Reconciliation is impossible apart from this action. But even if she does repent of her adultery, it may take time and an ongoing faithfulness on her part before reconciliation with her husband is possible. Even then, the breach of trust could be so damaged and irreparable that the relationship cannot be salvaged. In other words, as the one who sinned against her husband, she doesn't control the terms of reconciliation. The husband must forgive her, but reconciliation is made of something different. Reconciliation requires repentance, the rebuilding of trust, and ultimately the grace of God to accomplish it. Now, there are powerful stories of reconciliation. This is because of the power of God to restore broken things. He can take broken relationships and mend them back together. He is capable of healing the deepest of wounds. Thus, we shouldn't automatically conclude that God isn't interested in reconciliation. It delights God to see enemies reconciled and for peace to reign in relationships. Consider that God reconciled us to himself through the blood of Christ. He forgave us of our sins, but he also restored us to a relationship with himself. That reconciliation required our repentance. Repentance is the key to any hopes for reconciliation in our estranged relationships today. So when does forgiveness not lead to reconciliation? Pastor Tom Hicks said this, when the sinning party clearly does not repent. The Bible gives strong warnings against walking with impenitent sinners. God commands Christians to flee from the wicked. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. The Lord does not want us to be companions with bad company. The Christian response to an impenitent sinner is to avoid them, not to reconcile with them. Now, many object that Christ ate and drank with sinners, as it says in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And he certainly did, but only to call them to himself and to urge them to repent of their sins. Chapter 9, verse 13 of the book of Matthew. 
He did not fellowship with the wicked. In fact, the Bible is clear that he didn't trust the crowds of sinners who listened to his teaching, as it says in John chapter 2, verse 24. Trusting people is not a biblical virtue. It is foolish to trust those who are untrustworthy. Jesus says, beware of men, as it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. Thus, as Christians, we must not reconcile with those who do not repent, but persist in their sins. Christ fled from the wicked. He avoided going to Jerusalem because he knew people meant him harm, as it says in in John chapter 7, verse 8. Christ frequently ran away when the Pharisees or crowds sought to coerce him or do him harm. Look at John chapter 6, verse 15, chapter 8, verse 49, chapter 10, verse 39, the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. He only gave up his life at the time and place when he agreed to do so in the terms of the covenant of redemption. He was a willing sacrifice for sinners. But prior to the cross, Jesus protected himself and did not offer himself up to the ungodly. Point two, when the sinning party only seems to repent. Sometimes unrepentant sinners will claim to repent, but they don't really repent. They may weep and confess their sins, but it's only worldly sorrow. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, as it says in the New Living Translation, for the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. They may say all the right words and appear to be godly, as it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, but their behaviors never fundamentally change. They may change for a, for a short while, for a short time, but soon enough, they return to their patterns of sin. They may hide their sin and make a display of outwardly righteous behavior, but the pattern of sin remains. They may not seek accountability or they may manipulate the people who are supposed to be holding them accountable, but they persist in their sin even while claiming to repent. The Bible is clear that we are to avoid those who only claim to repent. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 warns of those having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Christians should not reconcile with people who pretend to repent, but whose lives are still enslaved to sin. Point three. When the sin has caused great harm and offense, it's important to understand that some sins have such great consequences that they completely shatter the trust at a personal level, and the relationship can never be restored. For example, within a marriage, adultery can have such disastrous effects and be such a betrayal of trust that the spousal relationship can never be reconciled within the marriage covenant, sometimes called restoration. That's why God says adultery is grounds for divorce, whether or not the adulterous spouse repents. In That says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 to 32. Scripture nowhere requires spouses to reconcile within a marriage. When one spouse has biblical grounds for a divorce, even if the offending spouse repents. The Bible does require us to forgive those who have harmed us. And it requires us to reconcile as brothers and sisters in Christ if the sinning party repents. But the Bible does not tell us to trust people and receive them into close companionship. If they have utterly destroyed our trust, we must love them. It says in Matthew chapter 4, verse 
I mean, chapter 5, verse 44. But we are not required to trust them, as it says in John chapter 2, verse 24. Finally, Christians need to be very careful not to demand that people reconcile. Too often, Christians are eager to see relationships restored. And while a restored relationship could be a beautiful thing, it may also be a terrible thing. Christians shouldn't pressure other Christians to reconcile when reconciliation is not biblically warrant, warranted. I'm not going to lie, I've seen that. It's like, y'all need to y'all need to get together. You know y'all are children of God. Yes, we. yes, that's true. But if it's not biblically warranted or if it's not in God's will, why? So what happens when you cannot reconcile? Minister Rick Renner of Rick Renner Ministries tell this, tells this story. Say that five times fast. <laughs> he says this. Many years ago, I had to regularly deal with the pastor who was one of the rudest and most belittling people I had ever met in my life. But the man lived in the same city as I did, so I couldn't avoid seeing him from time to time. Whenever he and I found ourselves in the same room, I was nearly always shocked at what came out of his mouth. He freely gossiped and spoke malicious things about other pastors and churches. Everyone was to his target, including me. Because he was a pastor in our same city, I tried very hard to get along with him. But he was one of those people who simply rubbed me the wrong way, and I just didn't like him. And I definitely didn't like being near him. I repeatedly asked the Lord to help me forgive the callous words he had spoken about me to other pastors and leaders. Because he and I were pastors of the two largest church in that particular nation, I knew I had to get along with this man. Nevertheless, trying to draw close to him was like trying to hug a cactus. I got jabbed and stabbed every time I came close. I tried to convince myself that my inner conflict with this pastor was a result of a wrong mix of personalities. But if that were the case, this man had a wrong personality mixed with every pastor in our city the truth was that he was simply an offensive person he knew he was offensive he had enjoyed it and had no intention of changing and the way he affected me was exactly the way every other pastor i knew felt as well after many years of struggling in my relationship with this man i finally came to realize that although this man was mightily gifted as a public communicator he had no people's skills on a personal level he was really ill-mannered the problem truly was him. Because this pastor respected no one but himself and was not submitted to any spiritual authority, no one could find a way to speak into his life to help him. So what was I to do in this situation? As I said, he and I were each pastors of the two largest churches in our city. So we were continually attending meetings in which both of us were expected to participate. Like it or not, I was going to regularly be in this man's company. It was impossible for me to, to avoid this man. So I began to ask the Lord to help me know how to get along with him so I didn't leave upset every time the two of us had to be in the same place. The Holy Spirit led me to Romans chapter 12, verse 18. It says, If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. This verse gave me direction because it provided helpful answers that enabled me to deal successfully with this difficult situation. And I believe these answers will also help you know how to deal with that person who constantly rubs you the wrong way. 
Notice that the Apostle Paul began the verse by saying, if it be possible. The fact that he began with the word if, the Greek word ei, it's like, it means, it's like an open question mark with no definitive answer. It means there may be times where we run into a case where it's not possible to have peace with everyone. As we all are aware, it can be very difficult to be at peace with some people. Not necessarily because we are so difficult, but because they are hard to get along with. But remember, they may think the same of us. <laughs> but regardless of the difficulty of the task or the ugly behavior of those we encounter along the way in life, the command of God remains. To the best of our ability, we must give our best efforts to be at peace with all men. The word possible comes from the Greek word dunaton. I hope I'm not butchering these words. Please forgive me if I am. In this verse, it expresses the idea of something that is potentially difficult, but nonetheless doable. But because this phrase begins with the word if, it casts a shadow on whether or not it is truly doable. Maybe peace is attainable. Maybe it isn't. But if it is doable, you are to give it your best shot. For this reason, this phrase could be translated, if it is doable, it, if it is feasible, or, as the King James Version translates it, if it is possible. Paul continues to say, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. The words, as much lieth in you, come from a mixture of Greek words that means, as far as it depends on you. The phrase points towards you and me, placing the responsibility of maintaining peace and a good attitude on us, not on the person we find to be so offensive. This clearly means that God is expecting us to do everything we can from our perspective to give it our best to live peaceably with all men. Now, the words live peacefully are from the word Arianeo. I, I know I butchered that. I'm going to just spell it E-I-R-E-N-E-U-O, which is a form of the word Irene which means to live in peace or to possess peace. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, it carries the idea, once you finally obtain peace, you must determine that you are going to do your best to make sure it is maintained and kept. In other words, instead of being a contributor to the problem, you are to do all that you can be to be a facilitator of peace. And notice that Paul said we are to do this with all men. In his case, the words all men meant that he had to live peacefully with the ill-mannered pastor mentioned earlier, who continually upset him with his offensive behavior. But the words of the Holy Spirit used in this verse are unquestionable. The words all men is a translation of the word pantan anthropon. The word pantan is an all-encompassing wor word that means everyone. The word anthropon comes from anthropos, the Greek word that describes all of mankind, including every male and female of every race, nationality, language, religion, and skin color. No one excluded. There is no phrase in the Greek that could be more all-encompassing than panton, anthropon. It literally embraces the entire human race. It does not say we have to agree with all people or condone their behavior. But as much as it depends on us, we are to be at peace with them. I'm going to read that again because I really want you to get that. It does not say we have to agree with all people or condone their behavior. 
but as much as it depends on us, we are to be at peace with them. This is just my note really quickly. When we be when we're at peace with people, everything they do or say, we don't agree with that. Don't have to. It doesn't mean we're condoning it, it just means that we are choosing to live at peace. It may look different for some people. But it's what we are called to do. When Paul wrote this verse, he and other Christians were facing horrible pagan and religious opposition from those who had no tolerance for narrow-minded believers. I put That's in quotation marks. <laughs> Yet it was at this time that the Holy Spirit commanded them through this verse to do everything they could to get along with everyone. And this same divine command is directed towards us. It doesn't say to live peaceably with only friends, family, peers, or those who agree with us. It says that if it is possible, we are to live at peace with all men. An interpretive version of Romans chapter 12, verse 8 could be rendered, if it is doable at all, and as much as depends on you, be at peace with everyone, no one excluded. Minister Renner said that the verse was helpful to him when he was learning how to get along with the ill-mannered pastor. He says this, I understood that Jesus did not expect me to be his best friend, but Jesus did expect me to give it my best effort to live peaceably in that situation. If being at peace with him meant perhaps not engaging in a lengthy conversation with him, then whatever I had to do, I was determined not to live upset with this man who had been such a source of pain and irritation to me. I had to let it go, let God deal with him, and walk away from my hankering to fix or correct him. As much as it depended on me from my side, I was going to do whatever was necessary to be at peace with him. He also said this, I know that you have relationships that trouble you, as this is true of everyone. If you're tired of getting upset or being irritated or unsuccessfully trying to correct those individuals, perhaps you should choose the route of simply seeking to be at peace. Negotiation with a difficult person is not always possible. So sometimes the best option is simply doing whatever is necessary to be at peace. This was the message the Holy Spirit spoke to me. And, I, and he believes that it is the message the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you right now as well. So if you're exhausted from trying to fix an unfixable relationship, and yet your contact with that person is inescapable, Ask the Holy Spirit to help you deal with your own heart so that you can be at peace, even with that person. That difficult relationship is part of the all men with whom the Holy Spirit commanded you to be at peace. As stated before, it doesn't mean that you have to agree with that person, condone what he or she does, or discard your beliefs to obtain peace. It simply means you choose not to enter into the fray with that person any longer. You will be more at peace as a result and you will be unmoved by the difficult people in your life because you have set yourself to be at peace with all men, regardless of what anyone says or does. That's powerful. I think of the last episode I did with Teresa Leet. And maybe being at peace means to pray for them for their souls to be saved and to come in faith in Jesus Christ. 
Maybe it's walking away from conversation. Maybe it's saying a quick hello and goodbye. I don't know. But it's like Minister Renner, Renner said. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you deal with your own heart so that you can be at peace even with that person. I pray this really spoke to someone and that it answered a question you had prayed or you thought about out loud or in your mind or in your heart. I love you all and I want you all to prosper in Jesus' name. And it's like I said before, we have to pray, seek God's wisdom on if a relationship should be reconciled and pray that he heals both your heart and theirs. The offending party must repent of their wrongdoing and see if the offending party is producing fruit in keeping with the repentance. I love you all. Be blessed. This is a sidebar, I have to say this. I mentioned drunk driving and sexual abuse earlier. If you or anyone you know are struggling with drug or alcohol abuse, I'm putting the National Drug and Alcohol Treatment Hotline in the show notes. Or if you or anyone you know have been sexually abused, I am putting the National Sexual Assault Hotline in the show notes because that shouldn't happen to anyone. And I mean anyone. Male, female, elderly, adult, teenager, child, whoever. It should not happen. I know that there are times where we don't have the strength to forgive those who have hurt us, to do what it takes in this episode, and more. We can only do these things with the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins to be forgiven in the past, present, and future. And he rose from the grave to give us eternal life, a relationship with God himself, power over sin, and power over the enemy. If you want Jesus Christ in your life, just pray this. Dear Lord, thank you for dying for my sins and my wrongdoings in the past, present, and future. I confess and believe that you died on the cross for my sins, was buried, and rose again. I give my life to you, Lord. Please come to my heart. I make you my Lord and Savior. If you pray that prayer, I want to say welcome to the family. This is the best decision you could ever make in your life. Now that you've made this decision, get in a good Bible-teaching church who preaches the gospel and message of Jesus Christ. You can look on Google, social media, and ask family and friends for recommendations. Also, there may have been some things said in this episode that may have triggered some bad memories and bad feelings. If this is the case, please seek a licensed therapist to talk them out. You can go through your health care provider, Google, or ask family and friends who receive therapy for recommendations.